From their padded cell in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is The Spiel, episode 19, Cold Fusion. Hi there, everyone. My name is Stephen Conway. And I'm David. Is it Christmas yet, Colson? <laughs> Dave's uh, just exuding the holiday <laughs> spirit <laughs> today. Hope everybody enjoyed our uh, holiday gift guide. We uh, we had a good time putting it together. It about killed us, but... It's crazy. <laughs> covering that many games in that short of a span of time. Uh, I hope, uh, hope we got some good gifts for you all out there, because... Uh, we're looking forward to getting some of them ourselves. Hopefully under some the of tree. our friends and loved ones were listening, so we can get some good stuff. <laughs> but uh, back to business as usual here at the Spiel, back to our normal format uh, this week. We've got two really good games coming up on the list. We've got Power Grid and uh, Forbidden, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's time to just jump right in and start. Cool. Game News and Notes. First up on News and Notes today is a game that interests me a lot, but I haven't been able to find out a lot about this. So I'm kind of, this is kind of a selfish News and Notes because I'm hoping somebody else has either had this and played or knows something about it. The game is Justinian. It's designed by Leo Colavini and Alessandro Sargassa. It's co-published by Mayfair Games and Phalanx Games. It was just released maybe a handful of weeks ago. It's two to four players, ages 10 and up, list for 45 bucks. You can get it for 30, 36 bucks. The game basically centers around Emperor Justinian I, whose great ambition was to always unite the Roman Empire. Um, there's not a whole lot more historically on the background of this game. In the game, I know that um, the players are secretly trying to influence Justinian's counselors throughout the game so that when it comes time for him to make big decisions, he will hopefully make them in favor of whatever you needed to go your way. That sounds Um, cool. What really stokes me about this game, not only because Leo Colavini helped design it, because (laughs) I just love everything he does, is there's kind of a gimmicky thing going on with the game board that I think potentially might be really cool. The game board has a large recessed area in the center of it, and in this recessed area is printed a grid of numbers. And then you have these large counselor tiles that have holes in them and they fit onto the board so depending upon where these tiles are different numbers show through the openings in those tiles i just think it potentially looks really cool but i'm not finding a lot about a lot about it online so maybe i'll just have to buy it (laughs) (laughs) yeah Hmm. imagine that (laughs) (laughs) but i just think it looks really cool if anybody has any more information let us know is there a release date for it yet i mean it's already out oh it's already out oh gosh i've totally only been out for a handful of weeks i thought that it was still coming oh no it it just came out a handful of weeks ago and it it looks really cool i'm surprised somebody hasn't jumped on and said good or bad things about it. yeah yeah well maybe we'll be the first here if uh, it ends up under the tree (laughs) (laughs) cool 
So what do you got over there? Well, I've got something really kind of off the beaten path here, <laughs> but I think as a gamer, I just immediately went, I want that when I saw this, <laughs> and I thought that it was weird enough that I should bring it to other people's attention. So my news and notes this week is uh, a piece of furniture. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's a table. Um, okay. I originally saw this on Boing Boing, uh, a blog that I read pretty much every day. Um, it's called the, the piece of furniture in question is a capstan table done by a company called Fletcher Designs. I'm only going to attempt to describe it a little. You're just going to have to go to the website. I'm going to include the link in the show notes, and you're just going to have to look at it because you, your jaw is going to drop, and you're going to go, oh, my God, I want that, I think. At least I did as a yeah. gamer. <laughs> so it's a it's a round table, sort of picture just like a normal dinner table, round size, normal size table. They make them in all different size um, designs, and they were originally made for yachts. So keep that in mind when we get to the price part but it looks cool nevertheless so it's normal table but you just basically twist this little locking mechanism and then with a simple just shove on the side of the table so you're rotating the table it rotates radially to where the table increases its surface area by like 73 percent um in like two seconds the the table separates into like pie pieces that separate and other little pie pieces that are pieces of wood come up and snap into place it's i mean one is beautiful two the mechanics in it are just amazingly cool if i own this table i would probably do nothing but just open the table and close the (laughs) table open the table and close the table (laughs) but for a game table how perfect you have a normal size table so you could play with you know a couple people you got 10 people over you got it, and there's you know a ten ten seat table in the same table. Yeah, that's it's, it's just it's amazingly cool. cool. I'm sure that it costs more than my house, <laughs> but uh, that's a problem. You have to sell all your games just to get yeah. the table. <laughs> but I've got my table, damn it! <laughs> but check it out. I'll include a, a video in the show notes, and maybe some resourceful gamer out there will figure out how they work and make a a non yacht quality one that the rest of us might be able to that afford. Would be awesome. <laughs> so check that out. The List. Over a decade ago, we took up the challenge of playing every unplayed game in our collection. Each week on the Spiel, we play one or two games off our unplayed list. The list started over 100 and has been as low as 30, but we're at peace with the fact that we'll probably never get to the end. After all, life would be awfully boring without new games to play. Let's see which games get crossed off the list. So we're going to go from a lighter game to a heavier game on the list uh, this week. Uh, So we're going to start with uh, Forbidden, this first game on the list. Uh, It was published in 2005. Philip Orbanes Orbanes is the um, designer. Um, Some other games of note that he designed, because he's designed a lot, are Trumpet, um, Ah. Confrontation, uh, Infinity, Cartel and the Monopoly card game, so way wide on the, wow. the game design spectrum. So that kind of gives you the idea of the his, his never, versatility. I never drew the conclusion. I had no idea he did trumpet. Yeah, he's a friend that's, of Sid Saxon and oh, has a lot awesome. of uh, involvement. And I think he worked for Parker Brothers, oh, okay. which explains the Monopoly card game exactly. um, tie-in there. So cool. has a has a good pedigree yeah. as a designer coming into this, and it makes sense that winning moves which is a the company that publishes Forbidden, um, is also 
uh, sort of a reconstitution of a lot of former executives right. and designers from Parker Brothers and Mattel and Hasbro and things. So it kind of makes totally, sense. The, the genealogy aspect <laughs> of how this game might have come into being for winning moves. Um, it's a two to four player game and it's about 35 minutes for an average game. So Forbidden is a light, slightly pared down card version of Mahjong with some fun twists. As in Mahjong and Rummy, Forbidden is a set collecting game. You're trying to collect either sets of the same number with three or more cards, pungs or kungs in Mahjong terms, or a sequence of three or more cards, chows, again in Mahjong terms. These sets must be of the same suit, which makes organizing the 13 cards in your hands fairly easy. Um, there are three suits in Forbidden with cards number through two through nine, but the numbers six and nine are actually the same card and are worth bonus points at the end, which I think is yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, it's very neat. Um, there are also um, eight Forbidden cards, which I'll get to in a minute, um, nine Royal cards that have special abilities that can be used during and after each round for scoring purposes. Um, so the game plays almost like any standard Rummy or Mahjong-style game. On your turn, you draw a card from a central draw deck, but then you discard your cards to your own personal discard pile. So that's kind of difference number one, which is like Mahjong. Right. Um, after the first player takes his or her turn, subsequent players then have the opportunity to take cards either from the draw deck or from anyone's discard stack um, in the game. Um, so this can, and this can happen in, out of normal turn order. So, for instance, if I need a black five to complete my set of fives, I could claim a discarded black five from someone else's pile as they discard. It would immediately become my turn, and I would be forced to display my full set face up on the table. In other words, you can only claim discards um, if they immediately form a set. You can't hold them on for later use. Um, this freewheeling card claim mechanic is very reminiscent of Mahjong, but I think that one of the cool things that Forbidden allows you to do something that you always want to do in Mahjong but you can't do, and that is if someone tries to claim one of your discards, you can play the Forbidden card on them and stop them. Once that Forbidden card has been played onto your discard stack, it's played sideways to indicate that you've played the card and not just discarded it, then no one else can claim cards from your stack um, if that um, forbidden card is still part of your stack. Um, play continues in this manner until someone else is able to form, until one pl player is able to form sets from all the cards in their hands, either with or without a discard, which is a little different yeah, than a lot of these games. You either have to have a discard or you don't have to have a discard. Right. This one, it can go either way. This is called going Chang instead <laughs> of Mahjong. I have no idea why they try to make up their own words instead right. of just playing on people's knowledge of these other games. That, that seems sort of silly to me. Exactly. So the player who Chengs tallies his score, and the other players also get to tally their scores. Only completed sets are going to score points. You're going to get five points for a simple set, which is three cards. You're going to get ten points for sets that are larger with more cards in them. The royal cards is where it kind of gets different than your normal kind of rummy mahjong. The royal cards, like the tiger, the dog, and the dragon, are wild cards and simply make it easier to form larger sets, which are going to score more points. The emperor card cancels all negative point cards that you might have in your hand, which is really cool. But beware, the player with the empress card can attract the emperor into his or her hand during the scoring phase. Uh, if that happens, the person who gets the royal marriage has the emperor and the empress. 
gets to immediately double their score, whatever their final score is, which is pretty awesome. Lastly, the monkey, which is, I think, the, one of the coolest yeah. cards in the whole game, adds a really fun potential twist to every scoring round. So each round, one card is removed from the deck and placed into a red treasure envelope. The player with the monkey, if, if a player has a monkey, at the end of a scoring round, they take that card from the treasure envelope and add it to their hand for scoring. However, if no one has the monkey at the end of the round, you take another card out of circulation, put it in the red treasure envelope, and so that stack can keep building until someone hopefully eventually gets the monkey and is really going to cash in with you know adding three or four cards to their hand. Um, really cool extra little component, I think, um, to the game. The forbidden cards are um, the other really fun scoring wrinkle that adds some depth um, to not only what you collect, but what you discard on each round. The forbidden cards count against you, negative five points each, unless you are able to go out. So um, Then you have to have X number of them yeah, to even be able to go out. Exactly. Um, it makes it very difficult to go out. If you're able to collect enough, for every two forbidden cards that you're able to have, if you go out, your score is going to double. So if you have two, you get double your score. If you have four, you get quadruple your score. So it's this great oh, do I want to get more Forbiddens, or do I want to get rid of them because I just want to score and don't want to end up with these negative points? The first player to reach 200 is the winner. Games usually last about the number of rounds equal to the number of players, which makes it a great, uh, just one more game kind of right. game, I think, because it, it goes pretty fast. Um, I think Forbidden would be a great introduction to all the basic principles of Mahjong without having to deal with some of the more complicated mechanics or scoring that's associated with the tiles, which are a little funky. Right. Um, the biggest selling point to me for Forbidden Beyond its entertaining twists is that you can play with two, three, or four players. It's certainly not as deep as Ming, which is another Mahjong-style card game, um, but Forbidden would be a great way to get your Mahjong fix, whether you're in a hurry or you don't have a foursome to, exactly. to play with. So so there's my little uh, overview. Um, what are your thoughts on Forbidden, Dave? I, as, familiar, as familiar as we are with Mahjong-style games, I was like, okay, here we go, another one. But this actually had enough unique things to bring to the table that I really enjoyed playing this. That little treasure envelope was awesome. I think we went two or three hands with nobody getting it. Yes. And then all of a sudden I had the monkey, and I got like four or six cards or something like that <laughs> in, my hand, in my hand. It was just really cool to be able to augment you know, my hand with these cards. I thought that was great. And the forbidden, the whole little mechanic of you have to have forbidden cards before you can go Chang. But if you have forbidden cards and you didn't Chang, then you're hosed because they're penalty points. Just right. a perfect balance between how many should I collect? Do I want to get stuck with five of these? It's just <laughs> really cool. And I love the separate discard piles, mannequin once again, Mahjong. Um, so it has just way a lot of really neat things going for it in a simple small package. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a very I think it's under ten dollars, and to pack that kind of depth into a, a game that's that's very affordable and yet very easy to learn because you know the step up from a game if you're familiar with Rummy is not exactly. really a giant leap to something like this. And the cool thing is if you can make that leap to Forbidden, it's just a very easy slide into something like Mahjong. If you play Forbidden a few times, then it's not going to be such a uh, a big journey to right. think, oh God, I can't play this game with all these weird tiles <laughs> and things. And to I me, I like the, the other thing I wanted to point out too is the whole thing with being able to stop people from taking your discards. If you're able to tell, you know, if I can see, you know, I know Dave is collecting 
a lot of the black suit or the the red suit right. or something, and I know he's looking at threes. You may not even be in a position to win, but you can make sure that he can't get what he needs by playing those forbidden right. cards. I love that sort of not really metagame, but that other aspect of that's something you normally can't do in a mahjong. Exactly. Even if you see someone's collecting them, there's nothing. You there's can do really about nothing it, right? you can do about it. I like that stopper aspect to it. That uh, and it's cool. You do it with a little bit of. I mean, once you do that, then you realize now this person is free to claim cards off that pile. So you have to be careful when you do it, right? You know, because if you just start, if all if everybody's discard piles has a forbidden on it, then you can't forbid anybody from the piles anymore. So all <laughs> of a sudden, you can collect any card you want, right? <laughs> but then they throw in the mechanism where you can pick up the forbiddens from the discards, and now you can re forbidden that pile. <laughs> so it's it's really cool. Yeah, I I would very much recommend this as a as a family game or as a game to to be an introduction to to mahjong or a, just a fast filler kind of game. Right. If you've got, you know, a few people and you're waiting to play something bigger and heavier, this would be a a great game to fill that that need, I think. Yeah, I think it's perfect. I enjoyed it a lot. On to the okay. the big the big yeah. boy for this so, week. <laughs> the second game off our list tonight is a little thing called Power Grid, Woo-hoo. or as the Germans like to call it, Funkenschlag, <laughs> which is a hell of a lot better than Power Grid. Yeah, but. yeah. So Power Grid was published in 2004 by Rio Grande Games. It was designed by Friedman Freeze, who you probably know from Fearsome Floors and Landlord, which are also two great games. Mm-hmm. Uh, Power Grid is for two to six players, ages 12 and up. List for 45 bucks, but you can find it 30 35 bucks. In Power Grid, each player represents a company that is trying to supply electricity to as many cities as possible. During the game, your company will bid for power plants, buy resources to fuel those power plants, enlarge its city customer base, and finally earn income from the cities that it can supply with electricity. The winner is the players whose company can supply electricity to the most cities during the final turn. This is a really cool twist, I think, on most games. Yeah. Because it's not how many power plants do you have, what's the largest network, how much money. It's how many cities can you supply with electricity, which basically means you have to play this game, a well-rounded game, in every facet to be able to do what they want you to do. It's just great. So um, let's jump into the components real quick. Um, First thing you get is a two-sided board. It has Germany on one side. USA on the other side, and this is where I will let you know that there are two expansions for yeah. Power Grid. Both expansions are double-sided boards. The first one has Italy on one side, France on the other side, and the newest one, which just came out maybe a month or two ago, has the Benelux countries on one side and Central Europe on the other side. Each of these expansions, 10 bucks. You that's can't go wrong with those deal. guys. Yeah, it's yeah, a great deal. So the game also comes with a ton of wooden pieces, albeit kind of small. Uh, they represent your cities and your resources. The cities and resources in this game are, are bleh, just the resources are coal, oil, garbage, and uranium. Um, also, you get a stack of play money, which is lovingly titled Electros. <laughs> so that's awesome to be able yeah. to say, oh, yeah, I'll pay 15 Electros for that. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. And then probably, I think, probably the most important um, component in the game are the power plant cards. Yeah. Um, each card, in addition, to, in addition to having a picture of a power plant, duh, on it, has a large number in the upper left-hand corner that represents the minimum opening bid that you would need to acquire that particular power plant. There's some icons showing the resource type and amount that you need to use. And then, of course, how many cities can you actually supply with electricity. 
So I think that probably the driving force for this game is absolutely the power plant market. I mean, mm. this kind of runs the whole game. So I'm going to give everybody a quick, quick overview of what that is, and then we'll kind of banter about the rest of the sure. game. So at the beginning of each turn, just after you decide turn order, each player has the opportunity to acquire a power plant card from the market. The market is a grid of eight face-up cards in two rows of four. The top row is the actual market, and it'll contain the four lowest numbered power plants of the eight that you can see. And then the bottom four is the future market, and it has the four highest um, numbered power, power plant cards. So on your turn, if you're going to bid on one, let's say that somebody um, ends up winning the power plant card, they remove it from the grid, place it in front of themselves. Here's the cool part. Immediately before the next auction, a card is turned face up from the draw pile and added to the grid. And if it is a high number, it's going to jump down into the future market, forcing one of the ones from the future market up. And mm -hmm. vice versa, if it's low, then something from the future market won't come up into the actual market. And this mechanic is just awesome. It had us just scratching our heads. Yeah. I mean, many, many times, I believe the first person to bid <laughs> on a power plant card is somebody, whoever has the largest power plant as of right now, currently. Yeah. And when it's your turn to bid, you don't want to bid because you want a chance at some of those bigger ones. <laughs> However, if you opt out of the bidding process, then you're, you're, out, done, you're, yeah. you're not going to get one this turn. So you have to figure out, okay, how can I bid on one low enough that somebody else will take somebody it. somebody <laughs> else to try and take it, and it becomes this war of, you know, how high can I push somebody to take what they really don't want? Yeah. <laughs> and it, it just rocks. And then the other game, the rest of the game plays out fairly quickly because you go on to purchase the resources that you need to actually, you know, fuel your power plants. You build your cities so you can create all these little networks of cities that you can supply, and then you actually get to earn the money based on what you can or what you choose, which cities you choose to supply. This goes on for X number of rounds. And, and that's based on the number of the money you're going to make. Is right, based there's on a little the number, chart. Like the, the number of cities that you're able to provide power to. Yep, yep. And you don't have to, and you have to do all. You could, you could have 10 cities in your network, but opt to only supply electricity to five this turn. Well, obviously, you wouldn't make as much money right. as if you're going to supply to all 10. Um, the weirdness with the game is that it's divided into what they call three steps. Gosh, and yeah. as you reach certain points in the game where things happen, then you're forced into the second step, which slightly changes rules, not very much. It's just basically where it allows you to build on the board where you previously couldn't. And then you go into step three, and this takes it you know, one certain step farther. Don't certain resources become less or more scarce based on the steps, too? Like? Yeah, there's, once again, another whole chart based, yeah. um, based on which step you're in as to... Like garbage um, becomes more available exactly as you go on. How quickly the resources are replenished, you know, based on which step you're in. Um, it this game gets all has a reputation for being a brain herder, but quite frankly, once you get through a turn or so, the flow is really smooth and simple. It just is the strategy of yeah. um, what to bid on in that market, and then obviously what resources <laughs> you're going to need. Um, so what do you have, Dad, about this? Well, I I really like, as you were saying, the, the whole, um, the way the power market, the power plant market works, and the fact that it's always in flux, that it's not, you know, you it would be one thing if you just turned over a card and, oh, I see what's coming. It's not like that at all. You By simply turning that card over, it can totally reorder the way the power plant market 
is available to the next person who's bid, which can either really hose or really help the people that are left oh. in the bidding. <laughs> I think Dave was the oh. one who got hosed the most. Yeah, I was in our, on the wrong end of that particular game several times, overbidding for you know something because it looked like the best available option at the time, and then he's out of the bidding for that round, and then something that was way better than what he got and way less costly <laughs> would come up and immediately drop down and end up being right, available. I would pay some <laughs> insane amount of money, like fifty electros. For a power plant that uses three coal to supply electricity to four cities. Mm-hmm. And then a power plant would be turned up that is driven by wind, uses no resources, and powers six cities. <laughs> and and the person can now buy it at face value since there's nobody left in the bidding war. Yep. <laughs> oh, that is so painful. But I think that... that the mechanic that sort of pushes you into that kind of pissing contest with your opponents where you're like, well, I have to kind of get into this a little bit, but I hope that the other person (laughs) aims a little bit higher, so to speak, (laughs) not to push that metaphor past the breaking point. (laughs) But but I like that. That's a really interesting and ingenious way to work that mechanic in in a way that seems fresh and new and isn't just the same kind of mechanic that we're all used to. Um, I also like the the resources, um, the way those, uh, to me, that's the other end of the strategy thing is managing uh-huh. those resources because you have to purchase the resources that will power the different plants and you're only able to keep, you can keep some in reserve and so you, you sort of have this, as the game goes on, you're having to shift maybe from coal and oil to, you know, solar and garbage and then maybe to hopefully wind and nuclear things. Right. But the way you have to manage those and you're constantly having to jettison because what, you're only allowed four power plants? Is that, that right? I, I think, think that's, that's right. right. Um, I'm pulling that out of my butt, but I think that's right. Um, at cer- certain points, you have to jettison power plants right. and you have to look at what the available resources are and how much you're going to have to pay for them to be able to kind of maximize the the being able to invest the least amount of money to buy the resources to keep everything powered obviously with the best ones being like the solar and the wind because you don't have to buy the resources exactly. for them which makes them you know really prized commodities on the bidding end but it there's a really nice balance there i guess is right. what and I'm he's also to say. come up with a way to for each phase of the game, the turn order is different. So, you know, at the beginning of the game, basically the person with the largest power plant is going to have to bid on that market or yes. on the power plant first. But then you're going to switch to where you get to buy stuff. All of a sudden, the person with the least number of cities in his little circuit, all of a sudden he gets to go first and buy all the cheap stuff. So yeah. it's, it's kind of also a game of positioning yourself at the right place at the mm-hmm. right time. We had kind of a weird play, too, in that we had most of the game took place in the second phase or second step, right. and we had almost no third step exactly. to, to the game, just that that was the way our game happened to work out, which I don't necessarily think is typical, no. but just I think that was just the way we were, were playing that particular game or bidding each other up, that we didn't... The, I think the steps are defined by the first person to expand into enough cities triggers the next step and we just got to a point where we got kind of bogged down and didn't expand enough to to trigger step three and then it was probably to our advantage all of a sudden the game was over yeah it was probably to to at least one of our advantages to have triggered it earlier than we did um i know i got into too many of those bidding wars where i spent way too much for for the power plants that i did and that put me behind the eight ball when it came to affording the resources i know another thing that i think is really cool about this game actually confused me early on when i was reading the um, instructions and that's that um your network of cities that you're going to supply electricity to don't have to be 
um, contiguous. Yes. I was, you know... It's not like a rail game where you're connecting the dots. So, I mean, you you can basically build anywhere that you can afford to build as long as you have a path from one of your current cities on the board. So if you can't get into one place, you can go through it, through another one, and build there. And I just... I remember when I was first reading the instructions, I'm like, what the heck? You don't have to have these be in a line? Yeah. That, to me, the one critique I would have is the terminology in the game. They surely could have come up with a better, the steps and the phases and, and the, the rounds and the, the turns. Round. Oh. It just, if, if anything's brain hurting about that game, it's not the actual playing. It's what phase of the <laughs> step of the turn am I in? Exactly. That keeping the, the nomenclature that they use, that there had to have been some way to have sim- not simplified it, but just m- made it more make more sense. Right. I think what was confusing is they they hinted as to steps early on, but didn't explain them till the next to the last page of the instructions. Mm-hmm. So this whole time in the back of your mind, you're like steps. What the hell are they talking about? Well, but I I even had the good fortune that I didn't have to interface with the rules directly. You guys were you <laughs> taught true. me how to play this one, and even you having sort of parsed through it, and then you know teaching me based on what you said, there were still parts of it that I was like. Now I had to really stop and think all the the way the different phases worked. Once, like you said, once you kind of get the flow of it, it really does. It, it's not like it plays itself, but it no, does. There is a a sort of natural flow to it right. that that actually kind of makes sense. But it seems like the terminology that they use is a barrier to actually getting I, the flow instead of helping you get the flow of right. the game, which that's that's bad. <laughs> right. It's just luckily it's so, such a good game. Yeah, yeah, that's and, not a... <laughs> right, the cool thing is that we have the first expansion and haven't tried those boards yet, so I know this will be coming back. And after one play, I, we don't own the second expansion yet, but that's... Oh, I'm looking forward to I'm going to be getting that fast. Totally. What would you say, the one thing in retrospect that I've thought about several times after having played it is, do you think this game has the potential to have like runaway leader problems or things like that if... If you have someone who sits down and is able to just totally spread out, are they going to be, you know, I, I able would, to kind of look look back and or not have to look back and just right. be able to expand before everybody else? I, I would like to think that for experienced players that wouldn't be the case because you could you can see the the places on the board where you don't want to allow people to get or get through, and you can see positions in the market where you can't allow people. Because I think that's where we made our mistakes early on. Yeah. Because we weren't aware of those particular things. Um, with six different boards, each board is going to have its own that's unique true. place where you do want to be or you don't want to be. So it's going to be a learning experience for each of those six different you know boards. But I'd like to think that if everybody's experienced in it, it would be it's pretty well balanced. Yeah. I. I... I definitely, I mean, I'm looking forward to playing it again, not just to solve that question in my own mind. Right. I think it's a, a, I had a great time playing it this first time through, but that little bug is in the back of my head just wondering if that could potentially be an an issue with this game. I don't think it came up, particularly in our game, but I I totally agree with the different maps and things. It does seem like there are many different ways to, to come at trying to win and that maybe... Maybe that's really not an issue right. at all. I think but. the neat thing that I may not have mentioned with the expansions is that um, each expansion 
varies the market and what power plants are available based on that country's use of energy, which is really cool. Yeah, like France has a larger contingent of nuclear power, it, right. so uranium is more available. Right, so they just take out some coal cards and some other stuff and, and feed more in or limit the resource track in one direction but expand it in another. I think that's really cool to yeah. mimic the actual country's use of it. You know, energy is awesome. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's not just the map that they're actually trying to, to make. I mean, there is sort of a, a nice twist to each each. Right. The way each board is going to play isn't just you're playing the same rules. There are small rules. And we should mention tweaks. that with we play with three of us, so you only use three sections of the, I believe the map is divided into six or seven sections. Mm -hmm. So the next time we play, even if we play on the same map, we could be playing in three completely different sections. So the it possibilities are damn near endless. Oh, yeah, and the interaction. I, I definitely like the interaction oh. late in the game and being able to close off. There are only so many openings in each city, and it, it makes it a race to try to get in there for the cheaper price before someone else beats you to it. Right. Um, definitely uh, high strategy, um, very cool concept too. I think that the this is a, a primo example of someone who really thought through the theme and tied it exactly. it's inextricably bound to, to the rules. You can't have this theme without this game. It's not pasted on no, at it's, all. And it's brilliant and fun as hell. And I'll, I'll even stick my neck out as far as to say that it actually kind of teaches some interesting lessons about how... Um, the the benefit and cost ratios of using you know the the cheaper more available power as opposed to the renewable resources that exactly I, I sort of agree with the politics of the game I guess in that uh -huh. sense that I, I like that <laughs> it pushes you towards looking at those things as better investments in the long run and and right. to me that's that's cool if you can actually <laughs> it's not educational in any sort of horrible you know capital e sense <laughs> educational but to me that's a that's a cool to to find a way to get that concept across in a way that is not educational but it's just a cool head, right? interesting um play and you can actually see how it makes sense within the confines of the game that's exactly. that's pretty darn cool achievement i think yeah it's great and the it's really cool now that now we understand why it's one of Jay Tomlinson's oh, yeah. <laughs> favorite three games. Oh, so. I can I can totally I can get behind that choice yeah, any exactly. any day of the week. <laughs> so that was the second one off our list tonight. Power Grid, yeah. awesome, highly recommended. If you don't own it, go buy this. It was great. Yeah, check it out. Backshelf Spotlight. These games need some love, and we're going to give it to them. The Backshelf Spotlight shines on those games that may have slipped past your attention. Classic games, rare games, obscure games that you may not know about, but you should. If you're looking to branch out and try something new, this would be a good place to start. So welcome to the Backshelf Spotlight, everyone. Let's remind everybody of the two games from two episodes ago that were in the spotlight. <laughs> Had extra time to guess. Exactly. So the two games were Acquire and Tighten the Arena. So we had a myriad of emails with all kinds of guesses. Um, I figured we'd go ahead and let everybody know what some of the wrong guesses were first. <laughs> so to start off, we had an um, email from Joe Peterson. And he's, his connection is that you start off with many things, as in eight creatures or seven chains, and then it gets less and less as you play the game. Great connection. That's cool, yeah. Unfortunately, not, <laughs> not correct. <laughs> 
Uh, we also had Robin in the UK, past winner uh, of the Backshelf Spotlight Connection uh, game. He guessed that the connection was Giants. Uh, Titan is a kind of giant, and there's a giant man on the cover of Acquire. Very creative, as always, Robin, but wrong. <laughs> <laughs> then we had Adrian and Mathen, who sent in very similar guesses, saying that they both involved gambling, which is very true in that dealing with stocks is always gambling, and of course, in Titan the Arena, you're gambling on which monster you think is going to finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mathen also <laughs> included another guess. His second guess was, I won't be able to use the spiel dice that I will win with either game. <laughs> so he's a, That's a little pander there. <laughs> it, it, exactly. Unfortunately, neither of those guesses is correct, so... <laughs> Nice try, though, man. <laughs> keep keep guessing. <laughs> um, moving on to Dave. Not the Dave sitting across from me, but Dave, one of our wackiest listeners, had some. He had some really good guesses, and then some just completely off the wall <laughs> guesses. So um, his his actually kind of interesting on the mark guesses were that both games underwent further development by Don Greenwood while under the old Avalon Hill label, which is absolutely and totally true, and actually one we didn't even know about. No, so that's, that's pretty darn cool there, way Dave. Cool. Um, next, uh, Dave, you want to take he, the... His second guess was that both designers have degrees in the hard sciences. Sid Saxon in engineering and Rainer Kinesia in math. Awesome. Totally very, a very, cool connection. Very good connection. We knew that one, but not the yeah, one we're looking exactly. for. Exactly. <laughs> Lastly, uh, on the his his uh, guesses, this is where they start to get a little crazy. <laughs> um, both designers have expressed a secret desire to move to Milwaukee in order to participate in the extensive nightlife uh, opportunities. <laughs> Wow. That's about uh, all I can say. I, I think Dave is a secret cheesehead. I've noticed yeah. that there's a trend towards mm-hmm. uh, Wisconsin in these things. I don't know whether he's a closet cheesehead <laughs> or, you know, what's going on there, but there, there's obviously something to, going on with the cheese there with, with good old Dave. Yeah, he's definitely uh, <laughs> crying out for help. I- <laughs> yeah, but the, I, we didn't realize we were just hitting the tip of the iceberg yeah. with that guest. So. Dave was so crestfallen that we didn't have a contest in our gift guide episode last time that he invented his own. It's hard not to humor such a nut, so here's here's the note that we got after last week's episode. He writes, Wow, 93 minutes and 50 plus games without a contest? What went wrong? Oh, how this perturbed me, left me hollow, haunted by the emptiness I pondered. Why no contest? And then I had an epiphany, a eureka moment, a revelation of epic proportions. This was a hidden contest. As I began to analyze the problem, I realized that this could not be solved by ordinary means. I employed statistical analysis, linear regressions, analytical geometry. I consulted mediums, Tibetan monks, labor consultants, even an insider working with Deep Blue. I polled people at gas stations, completed research at the local library, yes, they still exist, and quizzed the two people in North America who managed to get a working PS3. All to no avail, as the puzzle remained unsolved. My time was not wasted, however, as I managed to solve the four-color mapping problem without the use of a supercomputer, resolve Fermat's last theorem, and discovered a method for portable cold fusion applicable to home use. With the fortitude of Alexander, I forged ahead, not to be deterred by novelties, snowstorms, or sex, and eventually I deduced the solution. Oh, what complex devils you be. The answer to the hidden contest is... 42. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What can you say to that? Dave? 
I, I laughed out loud for a very long time. <laughs> it's hard not to humor you, humor you when you crack us up so much, man. This is the spiel, though, and not deep thought. Uh, we'll save the answer to life, the universe, and everything for the final episode exactly. of the spiel, okay? <laughs> At first I thought his answer was referring to possibly anything but what it really is referring to. It was, it was just insanity. Very yep. cool. We appreciate the creativity of that. It was awesome. But the bad news for all you guessers out there is there were no correct guessers. I can't believe that. I know. I, it's really shocking, it's especially when you had extra time to think right, about exactly. it. Right, exactly. So the correct connection, and I'll give you a little hint if you want to turn off your iPods and MP3 players to think about this. The connection was between a choir and Titan the Arena, not a choir and Colossal Arena, if that helps anybody. There was a minor change between one edition and yes, the other. Yes, So... The connection was that both games have hydras. <laughs> Obviously, Titan the Arena has hy the hydra, the monster that gives you the ability of playing a couple cards, and one of the conglomerates in Acquire was the hydra. <laughs> so, very cool connection. I thought it was going to be over-the-top easy, <laughs> and nobody got it. We seem to have the opposite intuition. The yes, ones we, we think absolutely. are going to be easy or hard, and the ones right. we think are going to be hard or easy. So... Uh, keep guessing. Um, I'm happy to report to the two past winners that their dice are in the mail. They should be receiving their prizes very, very soon. Uh, remember, you get your own set of Spiel uh, dice, laser-cut dice, uh, for use with any game that you want to use them with. So um, keep guessing. Remember, the two games we're going to cover this week, uh, there's going to be a connection between the two of them, and we want to hear from you. Um, send us mail at stephen at thespiel.net or, or dave at thespiel.net. And we want to hear your guesses, and if they're good and creative, you might just make the spiel like crazy man Dave. <laughs> uh, and uh, without further ado, let's jump right in. The two games with the connections are... Dino Hunt... And De Bellis Antiquitatis. Rather obvious connection well, there. Yeah, obviously. I mean, Duh. come on. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start off on the lighter fare, um, which would be Dino Hunt, published in 1996 by Steve Jackson Games, designed by, of course, Steve Jackson. <laughs> it's for two to four players, ages eight and up. List for 20 bucks. You can find online for the big $13. In Dino Hunt, you're traveling through time visiting the different eras where the dinosaurs lived in an attempt to capture them and bring them back to your modern-day dinosaur zoo, <laughs> which is really cool. Um, Dino Hunt has over a 100 different cards, each with its own dinosaur on it. The cards are oversized. They're full color. The backs of them have, are just chock-full of all yeah. kind of information, sci scientific information that is just really cool. This... This is a pretty unique game from, from Steve Jackson because he usually doesn't go with this educational kind of pitch towards the younger audience type of game. Um, but it's really cool. Um, the quick overview of the game is that on your turn you get X number of actions. You start your turn by rolling a die, drawing that number of dinosaurs from the deck of dinosaurs. Each, each card tells you which period of time that that dinosaur came from. So you kind of lay it out on the board. There's this neat little thin game board where your piece where your game pieces are located so you lay out the dinosaurs in their appropriate eras and then you spin your point your action points to jump up and down the line and try and beat up on these dinosaurs <laughs> by rolling dice and of course you can have there's little charts on each dinosaur so you could roll you know and actually capture the dinosaur and be able to bring him home or you could roll and have all kinds of heinous things, things happen. happen to you and there's a lot of cards that are 
are objects and tools and stuff that you can help in capturing the dinosaurs. And at the end, basically, who's ever captured the most dinosaur points is the winner. Yeah. It's a fairly straightforward, easy game. The fact that it's you know still in print after 10 years is oh, yeah. a testament you know, to how many people really enjoy it. It's very light, very easy, but definitely satisfies a certain niche that I think is really cool. Yeah, light, but it also incorporates some of those gamerly aspects to the game right. that, you know, sort of Steve Jackson is known oh, for, exactly. but in a form that's a lot more palatable, I think, that it, or accessible to right. a younger audience as yes. well that a parent could play and definitely have fun. Or, you know, I mean, heck, we play this game, and no kids required right. to have right. fun with this one because it isn't just... Uh, a roll and move kind of game. It has a right. it has a fun mechanic to it that, um, of course, it wouldn't be a Steve Jackson game too if you weren't <laughs> able to kind of screw with everybody else exactly. too. That, you know, it's never quite as straightforward as oh well, I'm going to do this because there's always someone going wait, I've got yeah, my exactly. electro laser helmet thing that can you know stop Take you from that. doing whatever it is that you're <laughs> wanting to do, which I like. He's pretty much known oh, for those kind of, of that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. those kind of games too. That it wouldn't be complete without that aspect, but. Highly, highly recommended in, yeah. in those not, you know, oppressive educational kind of way. Exactly. I think the uh, the most common place to find this game today um, appropriately is at, like, museum gift shops. I see it That's all true. the time, you That's know. That's very true. So it's obviously being pitched towards that particular audience. It's found so. its niche. <laughs> it, it, exactly. So that was the first game in the connection, Dino Hunt, which takes us to the second game. The second game, a game near and dear to my heart, De Bellis Antiquitatis, which is uh, known better by the, the its initials, DBA. It was published in 1990. Um, the authors are Philip Barker and Richard Bodley Scott, um, it was published by War Games Research Group, which is also WRG. Some people know it by that name. It's a two-player game, and games generally last about 30 to 45 minutes, which should be a big red flag for most people when you're talking war games, wow. because most war games, you're not going to even come close to sitting down and playing this kind of game in 30 to 40 minutes. So, here we go. Um, Latin for About the Wars of Antiquity, De Bellis Antiquitatis, is a, a historical miniatures war game. DBA is easy to learn, fast-paced, affordable, and continually challenging. Two armies, each with 12 stands of miniature warriors, face off. The first to destroy four stands will take the field. As its title suggests, DBA deals with warfare before the widespread use of gunpowder. This is an enormously large span of history, 3000 BC to 1500 AD. Wow. The game thus offers players many different options when deciding on what army or historical area era in which to play. One of the cool things about DBA is that it's half game and half hobby. While it's possible to purchase pre-painted and assembled armies in some cases, the more typical method is to buy the miniatures and paint them yourself. The miniatures are metal and widely available in 15 or 25 millimeter scale. DBA will accommodate either scale, but 15 seems to be the most popular by far. The miniatures are indeed quite small, but they're not that difficult to paint. Trust me, it just takes a little bit of patience, and I actually kind of find the painting relaxing. As a matter of historical interest, you could spend time researching color schemes or shield designs used by your army in that particular era of history, or you can simply paint them to a color scheme that you know suits your fancy. The point is that it's your army. You can make it look however you want. Once they're painted, each figure is then placed with its unit to create your army. 
The army lists in the book indicate which type and how many miniatures make up an individual stand of soldiers. The one steadfast rule is that every army is comprised of 12 separate stands of soldiers, be they mounted or on foot. So now that you've got your beautiful army, it's time to get them a little bloody. All you need is an opponent. Again, the object of the game is to be the first to destroy four of your opponent's pieces. The game is played with a single six-sided die. Believe it or not, that's all it takes to play this game is two armies and a six-sided die. That's awesome. <clears throat> which is just beautiful. The first phase of the game is setting up the board. The low die roller on the on at the onset of the game is the defender. It is assumed, then, that the battle is taking place somewhere on the defender's home turf, and therefore the defender is responsible for setting up the game board. The board must measure two feet by two feet. That's basically the only rule to the size of the game. They can be as, the board could be as fancy as a pre-made terrain board, or it could be as simple as your kitchen table. Really, I've played many games of DBA on a table using books as hills and salt shakers as trees. There are guidelines for how much and what type of terrain are legal for each game board. Page two. <laughs> During the battle, two generals are going to alternate turns in the, in the course of play. A turn consists of three phases, moving troops, resolving range combat, and resolving close combat, or move, shoot, and hack. Cool. A roll of the die deter for command pips at the beginning of each bound, which is what the Brits call each round, uh, uh. determines how many stands you're going to be able to move on a given turn. Each specific type of unit has a movement factor, which is the number of inches that it can move in a turn, and two combat modifiers, one versus mounted and one versus foot. When your armies collide, combat occurs, each player simply rolls a die and adds that troop type's modifier to the roll, and you compare the results. If your results double your opponents after adding in all the modifiers, he's history. He's destroyed, and you take him off the board. If you roll higher but not double, then that unit is forced to recoil, backing up from the unit that it's been attacking, or that's been attacking it. <clears throat> And that, believe it or not, is 90% of the game. I know wow. I took a little bit longer describing this one, but to me, that's the beauty of a, a war game that I can sit here and in four minutes describe almost the entire game to you is just brilliant. There are slightly more involved rules for terrain and supporting troops, but above all, DBA is a game that places strong emphasis on tactics. Having played this game for over a decade, I can honestly say that each game I play is different and presents its own set of unique challenges. Now, because each army has its own mixture of troop types, what you learn in mastering your Marian army, uh, for instance, might not apply to playing the Knights of St. John on Rhodes. When I first started playing my medieval Welsh army, for instance, I struggled mightily, losing almost 10 games in a row at one point. But now, having mastered certain key elements of the army, I can pretty much take on all comers and, and hold my own. <clears throat> We often have fun switching armies after a pitched battle just to see how different and challenging it is to, to play a battle in another general's shoes. My point is that there's no one DBA, really. Each army that you learn uh, gives you a new perspective on the game and a new way to have fun. If you can't tell, I kind of like this game <laughs> just a little. To me, as far as war games go, it is, it is par excellence, just one of the best introductory war games that's out there. It's a game that doesn't get a lot of press, I think, because it has this extra hurdle of, oh God, I have to paint miniatures to right. it. That certainly is going to put some people off. You can totally buy pre-made things and the game is just as much fun. I like, I 
I actually like the fact that it has this extra element to it. If you're into that, if you're into history or something like that, it just gives you an excuse to get into it all the more. And just, I can't think of another classic style war game that you can sit down and in an hour have played two games. And they're not like no brainer. Oh, it's just a dice fest. There's no thinking involved. There's actual real life hard decisions that you've got to make about how you're going to move your armies and stuff. And, you know, there, there are better maybe war games out there in terms of being just war, war games, but in terms of having that balance of being able to play in a reasonable amount of time, but still having the feel of, of, of those bigger games, right. there's not a better one out there. And I can't wait to get the guy across from the table to sit down and play with me. Cause I am a DBA virgin. Thank you very much. <laughs> Cause he, he needs to, to add that to his resume. I think <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. So that's, Actually, a connection yes. between Dino Hunt and DBA. <laughs> there is a connection. We want to hear from you. So remember, think of think long and hard. You you only have your normal uh, couple weeks here to think about it. So uh, give it some thought and um, let us know at Stephen at the dot net or Dave at the dot net, and we'll be interested to see what you come up with. Oh yeah, truckloads of goober. What is goober? You ask. While sages and scholars may debate its subtle nuances, Dave defines Goober as either a game with a ton of quality components or a game with really unique components. Now we're not saying that you should always judge a book by its cover, but the stuff, the Goober in a game, can be a factor in having fun. Great Goober can make an otherwise average game excellent. Great Goober can make an already great game sublime. Let's see what the Goobermeisters have for us this week. So this is an extra special Truckloads of Goober this week. This one, uh, this game was suggested by one of our Australian listeners, uh, Adrian. Can't thank Adrian enough for the suggestion because, believe it or not, this was a Goober game that not only were we like, wow... You know, I've kind of heard of that, but I haven't played. This is a game that neither Dave nor I have even heard of, let alone played, no. or it was not even in our universe of awareness. Absolutely Nowhere not. on our radar <laughs> at all. So how extra cool is that to get somebody to to find a game and bring it to our attention and have us go, holy crap, is that cool? So the game for Truckloads of Goober this week is Sabudio Table Soccer. Those of you in the UK and and Europe and Australia, I bet, are familiar with this, but we Yanks here had no clue. Um, It was designed and um, created by Peter Adolph in 1947. Um, Waddington's and Hasbro, there have been many different publishers over the year. We'll get a little bit into that in a little bit. Um, Two players, obviously, it's kind of a soccer-based game here. Um, About 20 minutes to play, 10 minutes per half of the game. So here's a little, with this having such a long history, this is going to be kind of a background about Sabudio as well as a little bit about why, you know, obviously why it's on the the Goober list here too. But because I think a lot of people aren't aware of this, this is kind of a little history of Sabudio. So I know I've been blabbing on a lot this episode, (laughs) but but, uh, it's good good stuff, I think. Um, So Sabudio Table Soccer is a refinement of a game called New Footy originally made in 1929 that was designed by William Keeling. The common principle of both games is that small figurines with semi-spherical bases with slightly flattened bottoms are flicked at a ball to propel it forward and eventually into your opponent's goal. 
The defender has a goalkeeper, a figure with a rod attached that extends through the back of the goal, allowing the player to try to save shots on goal. The new footy figures were made of lacquered cardboard, which were inserted into lead bases. However, the lead made them really hard to flick, and of course they couldn't be flicked very far. So, in 1947, Peter Adolph uh, created his new Sabudio game using some new materials that started to be available after World War II, namely plastic. Bingo. His figures were uh, hard cardboard still and inserted into plastic bases. These figurines were known as flats, since they were basically two-dimensional flat things, and they were the basis of the game up until the 1960s. Their aerodynamic shape allowed them to be curled around opponents' pieces and able to you know, just barely touch the ball. A variety of double-zero scale and two-dimensional figures are available from a wide variety of, of places today. The basic principle of Sabudio is this. If the player keeps hitting the ball with his figures and the ball doesn't roll out of bounds or touch an opposing figure, then you retain possession. Each figure can only be th- flicked three times in succession. Then another figure has to be used. However, you could flick one of your figures, flick another, and then flick the original. All being done, of course, as long as your figure touches the ball. The attacker, in other words, dictates, dictates the pace of the game, but the defender doesn't just sit idly by and watch. Um, for every attacking flick that a player gets hitting the ball, the defender gets a defensive flick. With this flick, you can't hit any other figures or the ball, but you can try to plug gaps in your defense or try to force your attacker into a path that's away from the goal. The method of flicking is surprisingly very specific. Uh, You can only use one finger, and you can't use your thumb as a spring. They even go so far as to define your nail and the section of the finger above your nail. So just like the first digit of your finger is the only part that you can use. And you can't use your thumb as like a spring uh, in order to hit the the ball, um, or the, the player, I mean. Uh, the pitch, this is kind of funny, was originally made from wool army blankets when you bought the Subudio <laughs> things because they were widely available. Um, another distinction of Subudio, as opposed to other table soccer games that came later, was that you can only shoot on goal once the ball is in the shooting zone. The pitch is sort of divided into quarters, and the quarter that's closest to the goal is considered okay. the shooting zone. There were some technical innovations that I thought were kind of charming and hilarious. In in the 1980s, the Italian players figured out um, that they could weight their double zero figures because they were a little um, um, top heavy, or they weren't. They just the center of gravity wasn't right on them for uh-huh. optimal flicking, and they used household cleaners to polish the bases, <laughs> which allowed them to just their their figures to just fly. Um, <clears throat> This revelation was further refined by the Swiss champion, Willie Hoffman, who developed a flicking technique that allowed him to slide players almost the entire length of the pitch with a, with a single flick, wow. which I can't even imagine. Um, so over the years, there have been several international organizations that have grown to sponsor events, including the first World Cup of Sabudio in 1970. There was bad blood between the two major groups in international <laughs> Sabudio uh, world, the SSG and the EFT, for many years over acceptable equipment and rules. But finally, in 1992, the Federation of International Sport Table Football was formed and now stands to hold uh, competitions and leagues worldwide. And even though the rest of the world gives us grief because we call it soccer, 
There is an American Sabudio Association, which is fa- was founded in the early 90s and sponsors leagues and tournaments here in the States as well. They actually have a great website with cool animated demonstrations of proper flicking technique. Ah. Um, Hasbro, unfortunately, has discontinued production of the the name Sabudio Soccer, um, table soccer in 2001, but there are tons of other companies that continue to make and sell teams and pitches. Here's why it's a goober game. I'm getting to the, okay. the meat of it now. So much for the history lesson. There are figures, soccer pitches, balls, and accessories, all individualized by national or club teams, by city or nation, all individually painted to match the particular nation. Wow. You can buy entire teams. There are literally hundreds of the different teams that you can buy. You can buy a stadium to go around your pitch <laughs> that matches the particular stadium of your the team that you like. You can buy uh, different size and shape goals that you know are of different qualities. You can even buy electric lights for your stadium that you plug in so that you're sitting there flicking and it looks like this little miniature. You're playing a night game, of yeah. course. <laughs> so there, I will include a dearth of, of notes and links that Adrian was kind enough to supply me with that will, if this has piqued your interest at all, um, you can go down the rabbit hole and just see how much there is in this world of Sabudio table soccer that I had no idea existed before... Um, that that sounds insanely exciting. <laughs> I would love to try that. The uh, the the best kicker is that not only do we get to salivate over this game, we're gonna get to play Sabudio very soon oh, because yeah? Adrian is sending us a two teams and a soccer pitch from Australia. If you no can believe way. it, <laughs> he it's in the mail as we speak, and so it's gonna be on the list very soon, and we'll give you a full report on on getting to play. How cool is that? I know. Thank you very much, Adrian. That, that is, is awesome. Beyond cool. We're gonna have our own set, and and we will give you our finger flicking good report uh, when when we get yeah. a chance to play it very soon. So I am way looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, Look forward to that and check out um, Sabudio Table Soccer. The Game Sommelier, or Right Game, Right Crowd. Like matching the perfect vintage with a delicious meal, the Game Sommelier finds the right game for any crowd, age, experience, or personality. Each week, one of us must pick five games to meet a fiendish challenge. Each week, one of us must earn the right the honor to be called the game sommelier. So, Dave, your turn to be on the hot seat this week. Your challenge, should you choose to accept it, which I hope you have, <laughs> is to find five games for uh, Scotty, one of our listeners, Scotty's having a wine and cheese party, and he wants games that his gaming group can use um, while they're at their wine and cheese party. So, what do you got for Scotty? I think this is, first of all, a great idea for a, a game get-together thematically with wine and cheese. Totally awesome. Uh, so I'm going to start off with, um, Scotty had mentioned something about, obviously he's going to have to, he's going to have a large group of people playing different games, and he's going to be needed to kind of explain rules at different places. So he might need a game where a large group of people can play and kind of disperse out from there and then maybe come back to, and I can't think of a better game than Wits and Wagers. 21 people can be sitting around here, broken up in teams, People can 
leave the game, come back to the game in process, kind of like a game that's always happening that is independent of everything else. That's not a thumb up or thumb down, just an idea for a way to have a game going that he can break off from or other people can break off from or come back to. Okay, so that doesn't the fit in no, the theme. No, okay. no, not gonna at all. Have, my thumb is so ready to no, go no, down on no, that one there. That's, that's not a, <clears throat> that wasn't a theme thumb <laughs> Okay, so first of all, I did do six games instead of five. Okay. I have two cheese-themed games, two wine-themed games, and then what I call two French Connection games. <laughs> Since some of the world's finest cheeses and wines come from France, I decided the final two games would just thematically be um, centered around France. So we'll start off with the cheese. These are the lighter, we hope. Um, Our appetizer. Yeah, exactly. These are the appetizers. <laughs> so the first one is the Big Cheese, published in 1999 by Cheap Ass Games. Designed by James Ernest, three to six players, you can get this puppy for a huge $3. <laughs> in the Big Cheese, players assume the role of employees at a large financial company, which is soon to be relieved of its current president. Everybody's attempting to win the current president's favor by delegating their underlings to, a cer to certain projects as efficiently as possible. An employee who can make big bucks for the company knows they just might become the next Big Cheese. <laughs> this is a really cool basic simple auction game that I think would work simple at a party like this. A game can be played in 15 minutes. You can play it over and over. It just it oozes. I think every single card nearly has a picture of a mouse on some type of cheese doing some type of project at this big business company. And it's just, I remember we played this a handful of oh, times. Yeah. <laughs> and this is just a fun, goofy little game. Um, you might need some polyhedral, polyhedral set of dice. No biggie, I'm sure everybody has those, but yeah. <laughs> great, fun, light game. I have to give you a, let's see, a bottle of sherry. Woohoo! Cool! We're starting with the, you know, before dinner drinks, yeah, so a exactly. bottle of sherry to Sweetness. go with that. I definitely say that's that's a good one. I can see, I can imagine, you know, a little sort of game station set up with the... Uh, the cheese set out, and maybe even right. the game on the table. I mean, you know, yes, you don't want to get the cheese on your game or whatever, but it's a cheap ass game. <laughs> yeah, for so three bucks. Who cares? You can go buy another you copy if it the gets game, trashed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, definitely good choice. Cool. So moving on to the second cheese game, which you might actually be sitting at the table where they're serving Gouda because this game is Gouda Gouda. <laughs> it's published. How did I know you were going to go there? <laughs> exactly. Published in 2002 by Descartes Editor. It was designed by Frederick Moyerson. It's for two to six players. You can get this for 15 bucks. Gouda Gouda is a simple roll and move game, but it has a couple twists that make it kind of interesting. Each player starts the game with five mice, all racing to get to that infamous cheese. To move your mice, you throw special dice that have green, red, and yellow faces. On your turn, you just pick a space on the board that has at least one of your mice. You roll one die for every every mouse on that space. For every green one, you move a mouse forward, a red one backwards, yellow nothing. First one to get a mouse to get to the cheese wins. Very simple. That's the basic thing. Then they have like a kind of little advanced rules yeah. where they can assign these special little rules to each person. So you might be able to turn greens into reds and reds into yellows or re make people re-roll or force them to skip a turn. So this is just a zany, very light roll and move game, but it had, it just oozes cheese, so to speak. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, I think this would be a hoot. It's a runny cheese yeah, exactly. game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I like how it can scale up to if you had people who wanted to give it a little more challenge, that you have those kind of advanced rules. 
Um, if you have beginners who just want to talk, you could definitely play the basic game, but you could also right. make it a little more interesting too by, by adding those advanced rules. So let's see. Oh, what would we want for our first course? How about a bottle of um, Riesling? Sounds good to me. Sounds good. Heck yeah. <laughs> so moving on to number three. Vine Handler, mm. published in 2004 by Amiga Spiele and then again in 2006 by Mayfair Games. It was designed by Claudia Healy and Roman Pellick. It's three to five players, costs about 15 bucks. In Vine Handler, players represent wine collectors slash traders attempting to gather valuable collections to store in their cellars. Uh, the way this is accomplished is through a series of bids where the players are offering their existing bottles to attempt to acquire other bottles that will fit into their collections a little better. The player that's able to collect and most properly display their wines <laughs> will be known throughout the wine country. <laughs> this is a really cool little game. Just basically a deck of cards. Each card depicts a different um, type of wine, different variety, different vintage. They've got your Merlot, your Dornfelder, your Cabernet, your Chardonnay, just all kinds of really cool wines. It comes with these really neat little plastic wine bottles that you use in the Those bidding cool. section. Then you got these little tokens that basically keep track of your wealth. I will mention something that I think is really cool about this game, this auction-style game, is um, you're dealt five cards, and then four cards are turned face-up in the middle of the table. You're bidding your wine bottles to attempt to get those four. Um, your bids have to be a, a different quantity of bottles of wine than anybody else. doesn't have to be larger. doesn't have to be smaller. Just different. At the end of the bidding round, whoever bid the most gets the cards in the middle. Whoever bids the second most gets the players, <laughs> the first most bidders, yeah, and the third really gets the cool. second, and the fourth gets the third. <laughs> it becomes this whole really cool game about pandering to people with your bids to get them to want your, yeah, to put stuff in mine. there. Yeah, it's, it's just really cool, but at its heart, it's just an auction-style game. It's very simple. Um, the theme is hot and heavy in this one. Oh, definitely. My, I, I, I'll give you. Let's see. Well, you're on the wine side, so how about a block of Emmentaler? <laughs> <laughs> now, my one concern with this uh -huh. one is with the amount of alcohol being consumed at the wine and cheese party. Do you think this might be a little too meaty a game with that that kind of mechanic where it's a little more thought provoking? That that would be. I would say. You'd have to play this one early. As right. the party goes on, this well, this game might become, now what am I supposed if, to do? If they intend on getting sloshed, this could be a little tough. <laughs> but with that little proviso, I think it's okay. an excellent choice. Definitely cool. good theme. Um, but just maybe play this one early in the evening rather than late. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Okay, number four. And I'm ready for a thumbs down. But I could not do this without putting this game on here. It was against everything I stand for. <laughs> The game is Vino, published in 1999 by Rio Grande and Goldseaver. It's designed by Chris Vart Conrad. It's three to five players, out of print. I found it in several places online for between 25 and 50 bucks. In Vino, you basically are buying vineyards, making your wine, selling your wine, hopefully making a profit, buying yet more vineyards. Basically, at the end of the game, you win if you have the most vineyards. So it's got a really nice map board of Italy. It's divided into all the wine regions. During your turn, you're going to get a chance to grow certain wines in certain regions and sell them. Um, wines that you sell are obviously going to be um, valued at a lot less now that you've flooded the market with it. And other wines are going to become more expensive. This is absolutely a brain herder. It was really cool. I love playing it. But I thought I remember Scotty saying that you know there are a handful 
of people at, at his group that are serious gamers, and they wouldn't mind one of these setting off to the side that they could go to for about an hour or so and maybe you know get into a more heavier game while there's plenty of light fare out right. there for everybody else. So I wanted to pick this one because it's a great game, and thematically it fits in awesomely. Yeah. Oh, I... I I'm not going to give you a thumbs down for this one. No, no, no. I'll give you a big chunk of Gorgonzola for this one. Uh, <laughs> little, little stinky cheese. To, a little stinky. <laughs> but, but no, I, I see your point. I would think that, yeah, probably Scotty or someone who really knows the rules well is going to probably have to sit if you've got people who are new to the game. Right. You can't just send, set people free with the rule book yeah. and say, good luck. Hey, or they're just going to abandon the game, I think. Yeah. You definitely would have to sit down with one person who has a good command of the rules. But I mean, these are gamer. It's a right, it's a I, gamer crowd, so right. at least part of it. So I can see having one game. To me, even though it's a little, it's a brain hurter. It's more the strategy in it that's the brain hurting. The mechanics of it aren't nearly as funky as Vine Handler. Right. Where Vine Handler, it's kind of a weird gamerly type game, and it's got funky mechanics too. Where that might just be enough to tip. Tip it over right. the edge. So I love this it. is a less of a risk, I think. And Vino, the little components that are the little grapes. The little grapes are yeah, awesome. And I mean, it's, cool. you've got all the names of the different wines. Yeah. So you can even serve the different Absolutely. kinds of wines. I, I yeah, we I can't can go argue on with for that. Days with that. I can't argue with that choice at all. Totally. Okay, so now we move on to our French Connection French games. Connection. Exactly. <laughs> no Gene Hackman. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one is Guillotine, published in 1998 by Wizards of the Coast, designed by Paul Peterson. Two to five players, ten bucks. An awesome, awesome <laughs> beer and pretzels, or wine and cheese in this case, type of game. You're collecting the heads of the recently departed nobles. You got this cool little cardboard guillotine. You're trying to reorganize the people in line so that you get to chop the heads off of just the right person at just the right time. <laughs> yep. Um, just oozes with theme. It would be very fun in this particular setting. I think it would be awesome. Oh, totally. I can hear I can hear the uh, <laughs> bad, fake French yeah, exactly. accents already. <laughs> it wouldn't take much vino for that to start. <laughs> Off with their head. I can totally hear that. <laughs> in the background, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So moving on to French Connection number two. Or should I say those? Uh, <laughs> published in 2003, the game is Paris, Paris. By Rio Grande, Abacus Spiele, designed by Michael Schott, two to four players, about 20 bucks. The players take on the role of Parisian business owners trying to profit from the tourists who are visiting the city. player who makes the most money by setting up businesses where the tourists are will win the game. This has got a little goofy mechanic, but all it takes is one turn, and it becomes just the simplest game. you got a stack of tiles. Um, every turn, you're going to take one stack. Everybody's going to get one tile from it. You're going to build your business on that corner. And the left tile that's left over is going to be where there's a tour, where the tours are actually coming to. And you're going to earn points for those for those tours. It's really kind of an easy game once you get past the first round. And I think it fits perfectly in with these nights. It would be kind of that middle game. For the yeah, people who aren't yeah. ready to head... <laughs> you read my mind. <laughs> people who aren't ready to head to Vino or the Vine Handler... But this one a, a little heavier step. than the other fare, this would be perfect. Yeah, I, I would agree. I like how you've worked the geography in with the not just going with the obvious sort of food right. food and, and beverage choices, but because so many of the wines come from France, that's a really cool way that if you did get some of the French wines or something, you have right. a connection there that's sort of a tangential one and not one it, that's so straightforward that, in your face, that right. gives you a good, kind of well-rounds the, the theme of the party that that would be. Very cool. So, so yes, uh, a baguette and a 
<laughs> and Maurice Chevalier. Exactly. <laughs> for and your I last. do have one more recommendation. Oh, okay. To finish off the evening, <laughs> I think Scotty should have an aperitif for the group, uh, a good port, quite possibly a tawny port, with a nice Stilton. Yes. Would be awesome. Perfect choice. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think we've we've hooked you up here, Scotty. I hope we'll see what... Give us know, some feedback. If you use any of these especially, let us know if, if you find them a hit or, or read us the riot act. Exactly. If you say, oh my God, what, what you were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I guess it's my turn it, to take it, my lumps here. It, it is. It is. Flip of the coin and it's going to be your turn because you're going to find five games for a Super Bowl party. Woohoo! It is that time of year. <laughs> Of course, the munchies and the beverages will be flowing. Everybody's obviously going to be focused in part on the big game and, of course, those zany, crazy commercials. So these games are going to need to be games that don't require your complete, undivided attention, but they can't be complete fluff. Mm-hmm. Just something that would be fun, you know, while everybody's watching the game and having a good time, but wants to actually take part in some games, too, and we'll see what you come up with. So is, uh, I have one question for you. Um, do all the games have to be while the, the Super Bowl is going on, or can it be the party sort of starts Start before play. the game, during the game, and Absolutely. after the game? Okay. Absolutely. Okay. This is a full-day event, you know, especially for us. Oh, yeah. There's no no, no partial. <laughs> yeah. A lot, lot of gambling, too. Yes. But, so we'll, we'll see what you... You can either come up with the games, or you can create an entire that's, day. That's right up my alley, definitely. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll have to do that this year, or maybe maybe I'll be in Miami watching the Colts play, although... With their recent performances, it doesn't look like that's in the cards uh, I, this year. <laughs> I, I think they're going to pull us off. I'm going to hope the last Sunday was a uh, just a hiccup, a fluke. Let's, exactly. Let's hope. Okay. Well, that's cool. That's 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 definitely fun. I'll look forward to doing that and see what I come up with. Cool. <laughs> Mailbag. It's time for you to let us know what you think. Comments, questions, criticisms. Let us have it. So thanks to all the listeners out there who gave us some good good feedback over the last couple episodes here. Um, so um, Richard in the U.S. says that he enjoys the variety of segments in the show and our passion for games, but he also thinks that Dave needs to be a little tougher on me in the sommelier segment. So okay, I've, fine. I've got the I got tough skin. You can bring it. I'm bringing a bat the next time. <laughs> Um, also, thanks to those of you who took the time to email Jay Tummelson at Rio Grande about the Carcassonne Big Box issue. Still no news yet on any progress, but we're actually working on a cutting plan that might solve our dilemma from a slightly different angle. So if I get any more news on that, I'll stay tuned. I'll, I'll uh, fill you in. Cool. Staying stay with Carcassonne, got an email from Matt who had another suggestion for Jay. Um, for all of us with the original Carcassonne expansions, the most important thing about Carcassonne Big Box is that all the expansion tiles have the identifying icon, icons on them so that you can separate them out whenever you want. Um, that's his number one biggest pet peeve about putting all the Carcassonne expansions together. He said, there's absolutely no way that I'm going to mark up my tiles, and I hate trying to figure out what goes with what. So he, he said he would like to ask Jay to print up a sheet of stickers, some way that you can affix these icons to your current tiles. Which, that would be great. That would that help you sense. organize yeah. them. So I think that's neat. Yeah. Um, so James had some really good suggestions for the Game Sommelier segment two episodes ago about video game uh, games for video uh-huh. gamers. Um, he writes, I would personally move anyone who played puzzle games from Blockus to Rumus 
or Rumi, I don't really know how to say the name of that game first. Um, also, rather than steer video game RPGers towards Warhammer 40K, he recommends Necromunda instead simply because it's cheaper and even though it's out of print, copies of miniatures are still readily available and you only have to have a handful of miniatures to make a gang and play. I think he's totally right on that. Cool. It also has more of a role-playing aspect to uh -huh. the individual characters. I think that was a really good, great suggestion yeah, there, neat. James. So we got an email from Dave. He wanted to point out that the GIF project doesn't have to break the bank. Although you could spend a lot of money on the entire set of games, the games are quite playable on their own without spending big bucks. The individual gift games, most notably, are a lot of fun just by themselves. He said he owns Devon, and he doesn't really have any intention of attempting to collect them all, and he is absolutely 100% correct. Yeah. Each individual game, with the possible exception of Tansk, yeah. which we can talk about later, is a wonderful <laughs> game, and you don't have to have all these. But we wanted to have that right. big, over-the-top goober <laughs> It thing. was the sky's the limit yeah, thing. Yeah, so exactly. We were so, just saying, if you wanted to spend a lot, right. you could. <laughs> right, but don't don't not buy these just because you can't afford them all. Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally valid point. So Scotty in Mississippi, Scotty again here, appearing on the Spiel this week. <laughs> um, he takes us to task a little bit for not including more true war games in our strategy and war game category from our gift guide last episode. He just wants to remind everybody that there's an incredible range of awesome war games available from companies like MMP, GMT, Columbia Games, and many, many others. Um, our lists are by no means ever comprehensive, and by folding strategy and war games together into one category, I'll admit it did leave traditional war games a little bit underserved. Um, here's some war game suggestions for me, though, without going into any detail. Cool. Um, I'll include links in the show notes. Um, Twilight Struggle... Hammer of the Scots and A House Divided. I think those three are classic yeah. war games that would make awesome gifts for anybody. Um, I'll turn this back on the listeners, though. If you have any uh, any games that you would suggest war games to fill that gap, uh, send us, drop us a line at Stephen at the Spiel .net or Dave at, at the Spiel .net, .net and right. let us know because we we totally want to hear from you on, on stuff like that. If we have gaps, we want you to help us fill them. Um, Scotty also did give us a good report from a recent game convention, um, but it's a kind of long story, so I'm going to save that for a future uh, mailbag. Cool. Uh, but very cool story. Um, we got a great email from Patrick in Sweden, and he wanted to let us know um, one of Stephen's picks <laughs> in the holiday list was Gulo Gulo. He wanted to let us know that it is Latin for Wolverine. In German, the animal is called Vilfros which translates roughly to big eater. He said it's a small fox-like predator that eats practically everything. That's a lot of great information. Really appreciate that. Yep. He also mentions, wanted to know if we had ever tried uh, Pentago, which is a cool little two-player abstract strategy game that we don't own, but we have had a chance to play. Yeah. I sent, sent him an email and said that, funny, the very first time we ever saw it was up in Pennsylvania with Mark. Right. And it's just a really <laughs> elegant mechanic and elegant board system. It is really neat. I definitely should would be tell everybody our... <laughs> to take a peek at that if they haven't seen it yet. It'll be on our list at some point, I have exactly. a feeling. Um, Craig, um, also another listener, uh, had a great Bear and Pretzel suggestion for the sky's the limit price range as a oh, gift okay. suggestion this year. Um, he writes, I thought if you haven't seen Cash and Guns, you should really give it a look. Um, I've played this game a couple times now, and it is a riot. It plays very fast, it's a total beer and pretzels game, and it has everyone pointing foam guns at each other. 
this game looks like total crazy fun and a ton of laughs. I mean, talk I, I about Goober, Goober game. I mean, it's like yeah. this Mexican standoff quick decision game where you each have to pick someone to aim at and then you're playing cards to decide whether it's a click or a bang uh, on your turn and the last person standing ends up you know, getting points and things. Awesome. I had no idea that game existed. This so. game will find its way on our list. Oh, absolutely. It, it Fun as hell. Thank you, Craig, for the suggestion. That is that is awesome. I would love to receive that as a, yeah, that <laughs> as a gift. Um, so um, before we end up with the mailbag here, we've got a couple announcements. Um, the biggest one is that with the holidays approaching and the new year approaching, we're actually going to take an extra week off before the next episode, episode 20. I can't believe it. We're Ooh, already at episode 20. Normally in our release cycle, we would be coming out with an episode on the 1st of January, New Year's Day. Because of the holidays and travel and just our busy lives, we're going to actually skip a week and that episode won't come out until January 8th. So you have an extra week for the Backshelf Spotlight connections and such. Um, it gives us an extra week to actually plan on a couple things for the website, too. So you might look for some, some new features on the website, hopefully, cool. come the new year. But uh, So this will be the last spiel of 2006. Can't believe we've, wow. we've made it all the way to yeah. the end of the first year here. 19 episodes 19. in, Dave. And That's we're, awesome. We're still going strong, and, and we're growing every episode. We seem to get more listeners and more feedback, and, and we couldn't appreciate it more. So yeah, it's wonderful. I hope everybody has a, has a safe and happy new year, and we look forward to, to playing games and, and telling you how to, how to find the best kinds of games and have a great amount of fun with the games that you do find here in 2007. So thanks, everybody out there. Yes, and, thank you very much. And uh, that'll put a lid on this episode. Cool. So remember, whether it's the roll of a die... Or the turn of a card. Or the flip of a tile. You don't have to play to win. You, you just, just have, have to play. play.